But Mark chapter 9 is where we're at. And I want you to start reading verse 1. It says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, what does that mean right there? Because that kind of sounds like he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And he says, there's going to be some here that shall not taste of death until they see him coming uh, in power. And we know that John was there. We also know it was rumored in John chapter uh, 21 that John might not see death until the Lord came back. Of course, John said, that's not exactly what he was saying, but that's, that was the rumor. So, you know, I, I, if I was a Ruckmanite, I'd be teaching John was still walking the earth somewhere. I mean, because if you believe your King James Bible, you know, and, and I'm going to show you too, this is talking about, uh, Jesus' second coming. Okay. And let me prove that to you by, uh, going to some of the other accounts. Well, before we do that, uh, I do want to just kind of share some of the different theories about this passage right here, because some people teach that it was, you know, some think it was immediately fulfilled at the transfiguration because in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever Jesus makes the statement, the very next story is where they go up in the mountain at the transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured and his countenance shines and they see Moses and Elijah. We'll read that here in a little bit, but I, I don't really think that that's it. I don't think that's what he was talking about. And I, I'll show you that proof of that. I think if we just stayed in Mark, you might be able to think that. But if you look at the other gospels, you'll see that that's not the case. Some teach that it was fulfilled in the first century. And I'm telling you, this idea of prophecy being fulfilled in the first century, a lot of the preterist type teaching, it is a growing thing. There are a lot of people that are dumping a lot of the futurist teachings and are going more towards preterism, amillennialism, or just anything that's not a a premillennial position. And I think a lot of that has to do with people being turned off to just all the weird, whacked out pre-tribulational teachings. The pre-tribbers have proved to be so incompetent in their interpreting of the scriptures and just, it's so bad that people, and because that's like the dominant, you know, teaching amongst the premillennial crowd, it's making many, many people just say, this is stupid. And then they're going and finding things that are worse. Yeah, much, much worse. And uh, I think it's it's scary how many people are doing that. It kind of reminds me of that verse in Peter where he talked about people someday, there were going to be scoffers in the last day saying, where is the promise of his coming? That is exactly what we're seeing. And this is this thing is growing. And maybe it's a sign of the times. I don't know. But it just, to me, I'm telling you, and we'll see examples of this as we go through this chapter. You know, when it comes to prophecy, I think it's important we just, Take things literally. Let's take things literally. When the Bible prophesies something and it tells us something, go ahead and take it literal. Unless it's obvious. Unless it's very obvious that it's figurative. Okay, don't go looking for a woman clothed with the sun and all, you know, or stand, you know, you know, don't, don't look, don't look for that. But, uh, there's certain things I think should be very literal. And so, uh, I do think, though, this is a reference to Christ's second coming. Now, look at the very last verse of chapter 8. Notice how it says, Whosoever therefore shall be, ashamed, or shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that sounds a lot like he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And then, because what's he going to use to gather up the elect? He's going to send his angels. They're going to gather up the elect. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting to be caught up. Okay, We're not just going to start flying. We are going to be caught up. Something's going to grab us and haul us up to heaven. And that's why it's referred to as a rapture or a catching away or a gathering together. All the terms that the Bible uses. There's no doubt this is talking about the second coming. But then, and so when he gets to chapter 1, and he said unto them, it's the same thought. I know we're in a new chapter right here. But he mentioned there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. I mean, it would make sense that you would think he's referring to this same thing he was talking about in the previous chapter in the last verse. But look what it says in Matthew 16 in verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what does the Bible say in Revelation when Jesus is talking about how he's coming and his reward is with him? So there's no doubt this is talking about the second coming. And Jesus said, there's some standing here that are not going to taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming. So uh, Luke 9:26 says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And here in Luke, it didn't divide the chapters. It's all there together. So there's no doubt this is the same thought. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what do we do about that? Because John died, didn't he? So what do we do? Do we join the preterist crowd? Do we say it was all fulfilled in the first century? Well, I mean, listen, you're not going to convince me Jesus came back in 70 AD. You're not going to convince me that there's not a resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And what did he say? He said there are going to be some standing here which shall not taste of death until they see. Now, does anybody remember what John was doing in the book of Revelation? He was writing the things that he saw. So, guess what? John did see it. It doesn't necessarily mean he had to live until that day, but he did see those things, didn't he? He saw those things before he died. According to history, they tried to martyr him, and they failed, and then they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. You know why they weren't able to kill him? Because Jesus said he wasn't going to taste the death until he had seen that, and he hadn't seen these things yet. And all those things that are mentioned in Revelation, those are the things that John saw. So if a preterist comes and just tells you, what are you going to do about that? Well, John did see it. John saw this, these things before he died. And so you know what? That's good enough for me. I, still believe, I am still a futurist. I still believe that Jesus is coming back. I'm still looking for his coming and, you know, the preterists might not like that, but you know what? They're just going to have to go jump in a lake because, you know, I'm going to believe the Bible over these people. And it's always a mistake when we try to help God's word be true when it doesn't need help. We just need to believe what he says. And we're going to see 
where the disciples, they messed up big because they were doing the same thing. Oh, it seems like God's word isn't coming to pass, so let's let's make it mean something else. No, that's always a mistake. Trust God's word. It, it, it's, God means what he says, and he says what he means. We can trust these things. So verse 2 says, And after six days, Jesus taketh them, Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, to the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now, a passage like this is one of these where it's just like, I really wish the Bible explained a little more what that was all about, because a lot just happened right here. But it's all contained in eight verses. And there's a lot of things that we could speculate on. And we always want to be careful speculating, okay? There's nothing wrong with speculating. I'll give you some, a little bit of speculation, but we don't ever want to make doctrines out of our speculation. We don't want to ever prove a doctrine based on something we're only speculating, okay? So keep those things in mind, especially, you know, when, you know, keep that in mind when I'm saying some of the things that I'm saying, because it is sometimes it's just speculating. Because uh, it's okay to look at this and wonder. For example, you know, Jesus being transfigured. To me, you know what it looks like he's doing? It's almost looking like he took on his heavenly form when he was in that mountain. In fact, it, I, I personally think, this is just my opinion, I think what's going on with Jesus here is the same thing we see in uh, Daniel chapter 12 when we're reading about the resurrection and they that do right, they're shining like the brightness of a firmament. I think this is what we're going to look like at the rapture. This is, that's my opinion. But when Jesus Christ comes and he changes us, all right, when we are changed, we are transfigured. I think we're going to look like Jesus did right there. That's my opinion. Okay. Uh, you know, I think he's kind of taken on a heavenly form. And here's what's amazing about this. Okay. Jesus was still able to do this. You know why? Because he was the son of God, but he also was holy, perfect, undefiled. You and I, even though we're saved, we can't do that because we're still sinful, aren't we? And it's going to take the power of God and him changing us. He has to do that for us to be able to be like this. He has to do that to us. He has to do that for us. We can't do that ourselves. But Jesus could while he was on this earth. You know why? Because he had zero sins. Because he was completely undefiled. I think that's a pretty amazing thing. But notice how after this amazing thing happens, he tells them not to tell anyone about it until he is risen from the dead. So again, Jesus is telling them he's going to rise from the dead. But, you know, the world was not ready to hear what these guys had just seen. If they would have said these things, if they'd have said we were up in heaven or up in the mountain and Jesus, he started shining like a brightness of firmament, started shining like an angel and Moses and Elijah showed up. What do you think the Pharisees and the Jews would have said? They'd, they'd have accused him of blasphemy, wouldn't they? 
They would it would have been a big stink. The world was not ready for that. But I do believe, though, the main point of what we're supposed to get from this passage, while we could all speculate on a lot of things, I think the key verse in this passage right here is in verse 7, when it says, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. I believe that's the key verse right there, what we're supposed to get. Because notice, here we've got three witnesses. Peter, James, and John. Three people witnessing this. That's important. We've been talking a lot about three witnesses. We have three human witnesses witnessing God the Father showing up, them hearing his voice, and Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, we believe they're the two witnesses, for one. They're two special people. But Moses and Elijah, many people would agree that they represent the law and the prophets. And you know what I believe is going on right here? Because the Jews during that time, that Old Testament, it was everything. That Old Testament, it was the law. It was the word of God. And when Jesus came along, we see Jesus was constantly being accused of going against the law and going against Moses and the prophets. But Jesus is constantly arguing them with them, showing them how, no, actually, this I'm doing exactly what Moses and the prophets said. Go search those scriptures. They speak of me. He told them that. And so what I believe we're seeing right here is God is just revealing and showing that everything Jesus is saying, it's God's word. Here, I'm testifying of this. We've got Moses and Elijah testifying of this. They represent the law of the prophets. And sure enough, everything that Jesus did, it does line up with the Old Testament. We all can go back and look at that. We can see that. But for them... Having a man come along and say things that are the word of God and maybe in their carnal minds seem in many cases to conflict with what the Old Testament is saying. God is just showing them without a shadow of a doubt here that what Jesus says you can trust. You know what? Because Jesus is the word of God. And that would have been, and we all get that, okay? We all get that today, but that would have been a major revelation for these people. This idea that Jesus Christ and what he says, it is equal with the word of God. And I believe that's what God's showing here. And Peter, in his writing, he talked about witnessing this very moment. And it's important that these guys shared their witness of what they saw in this situation. Because it is. All of this that happened right here, it just showed the authority that Jesus had. It shows that he was backed up by God the Father, who they claimed to worship. He was backed up by Moses and the prophets that they claimed to follow. And I believe God is just making it all clear here that whatever he says, you can believe it. This is my beloved son. Hear him. God's saying, listen to what he says. And I get it. God the Father is the ultimate authority, isn't he? But if So if God the Father says, listen to Jesus, then you know what? Us listening to Jesus is us listening to God the Father. Us disobeying Jesus is disobeying God the Father. We can't claim to be doing something for God and bypassing Jesus Christ because God has directly told us, hear him. And so I believe that's what, I believe that's the main significance of this passage right here. The, and so the old, there is nothing in our New Testament that goes against the Old Testament. Okay? God was showing here all power, authority that was contained in the Old Testament is backing Jesus Christ. 
and nothing he said conflicted. In fact, the Old Testament, it does. It testifies of Jesus Christ. Now turn over to Matthew, or uh, I'm sorry, Acts. Acts chapter 3 and verse number 18. This is a very, very important passage. One that, uh, this is a great passage used against dispensationalists too. It says in Acts 3.18, it says, But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled what the prophets wrote about. Don't you tell me the prophets didn't write about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is completely contrary to what God's word says. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And I believe that's going to happen at the return of Christ. That's when the restitution of all things is going to take place. But notice this, for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he say unto you. Moses prophesied that another prophet was going to come like him. And you know what Moses said? Hear him. That was important for the Jews who acted like they were following Moses when they were rejecting Christ. And you know what they're saying? Moses wrote about him. And you know what Moses said? Hear him. That's what Moses said. It would be, and it would be like this too. As the pastor, if I like gave a command and like, all right, this is how I want services run. Okay. And, and you guys know how I like things done here and what I've told you to do. But let's say I was going to leave and I was going to be gone for a week. And then I said, Hey, what Austin tells you to do, do. And then all of a sudden, you know, Austin goes and he's doing something a little bit different than what I did. And then all of a sudden y'all are throwing a big fit. But he's like, oh, you're, that's not what Pastor Tommy wanted done. Well, that might be a little different than what I was doing before, but I did give the command and I gave him the authority to maybe change some things up a little bit. So he's not going against me, is he? And some things did change with the New Testament, didn't they? But understand that... You know, God gave Jesus that authority. So if there is something a little different now, like, for example, we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. You know what? That's okay. Jesus said not to. Oh, I believe Moses. But Moses said to listen to him. So we're not going to sacrifice lambs anymore because Jesus said so. And Moses told us to listen to Jesus. So you can see how important this thing, this stuff would have been, especially for those Jews to understand. We take this stuff for granted. But let's keep reading. It says, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. That's talking about Jesus. If you don't listen to him, you're going to be destroyed. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. All the prophets spoke of Jesus. So if you're going to say, I'm not following Jesus, I'm following Elijah. Elijah spoke of Jesus. I'm following Isaiah or Jeremiah. Those guys spoke of Jesus. They said to listen to them too. So guess what? We're following Jesus. It says, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant, which God hath made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first. 
God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you. This is the blessing of Abraham, folks. It's flat out stated to us. This is not Israel blessing us with money. And they're not blessing us with money, by the way. We're blessing them with money. Right here, the Bible tells us what the blessing from Israel is, or the blessing of Abraham. The blessing was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from Abraham. Jesus Christ came from Israel. He was the blessing. And it says, look at this. God sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. How, now, what, how did he do that? He did that when he died on the cross. And yet, dispensationalists, they want to go to Romans 11 when it's quoting Old Testament saying, for out of Zion shall deliver come, shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. And they say that's in the future. No, it's written in past tense because it's quoting Old Testament. But guess what? Jesus came and turned everyone away from their iniquities. He did when he died on the cross. It's not Jesus's fault. It's not the prophet's fault that most of the Jews have said, well, you know what? I don't want that. That they haven't accepted that. That they have not believed that. But he did that. We're not looking for the deliverer to come and turn ungodliness away from Jacob in the future. He only had to die on the cross once. That was done. And they better get on board now. Now is the day of salvation. They better get on board with Jesus Christ and the cross. If they don't, they will split hell wide open. No doubt about that whatsoever. So mark that Acts 3, 18-26. You can kill the dispensationalists when they're just butchering, butchering Romans 11, the way they do that. One verse. And so all Israel shall be saved, out of Zion shall come and deliver. Yeah, they, they have no idea. It's like, you really don't think that happened? You really don't think the deliverer came? What was Jesus doing on that cross? It's, 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 just, it's insane what people will do to just not admit, yeah, we messed up. Yeah, all that flag waving we did with that Star of Rim fan in our church was stupid, and it was unbiblical, and it was out of line. That was really stupid. I guess we shouldn't have, I guess we shouldn't have raised all that money for that missionary to go help and buy bulletproof vests and ammo and guns for Israeli military. I don't think we were doing the Lord's work when we did that. Nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to admit that they were wrong to bring that politician into their church that, you know, and just give him all kinds of money and all kinds of praise because he says he's going to help Israel. You know, it's just, it's insane what people are doing with the scriptures today and they just can't admit they're wrong. That's stubbornness, my friend. And these people, they wonder why their churches are dead. They wonder why they're going nowhere. They wonder why all their guys are going trendy. I'm watching, a, there's a camp meeting going on this week out at Trevor's church. And all they're doing is lamenting, just losing all their guys to compromise, losing all their guys to liberalism. So, well, you know what? Maybe if you quit covering for perverts in your church, maybe if you started preaching real doctrine instead of pre... They did their American flag worship thing again in their service. I don't know if you saw the one they did the other day, but they did it again. They got their guys marching around, marching around their American flags all over the place while they're meeting outside in the cold and rain because the government's making them. They, they had a service outside today in the hail. So the government, you know, to protect, but you know what? At least they weren't going to get COVID because they're outside. They're there. I mean, forced by our government. And they're there worshiping America. It's just like, and, and then they're wondering why their guys are all going trendy. You know why? Because they realize what's going on here is stupid and absolutely ridiculous. I just, I, I was flabbergasted. I like, they're really, they're doing that again. 
while they're still a year later being forced outside. It's just, it's astounding. And, and, I, and I won't even get into the preaching that's been going on there. I mean, I, it, it's like every one of these guys, they watch my video I just put out about topical preaching and how not to do it. And they're like, you know what? Those are some good ideas. I'm going to go do everything he said not to do, and I'm going to go preach this message. I mean, that's what they're doing. And here's the thing that stinks. I like a lot of the stuff that they're trying to preach. I mean, they're ripping on the trendies. You know, they're ripping on the compromises and the CCM and all this junk. I'm for that, but good night. You know why you're failing? You guys don't use any Bible. No Bible at all. And I, I hate to get sidetracked on this stuff, but I am, I'm just, I'm getting really frustrated. I've just about had enough. I'm getting tired of just seeing dumps. I love the IFB. I am nice to a fault with these people, but they keep preaching dumb stuff. They don't learn. They don't fix anything. More and more of these people, too, are turning towards lordship salvation. They don't even believe lordship salvation. If you actually if you actually talk to these people, they don't really believe that, but they're preaching it because they're responding to the trendies that are just going so far liberal and so far to the left, and they're swinging the pendulum the wrong way the other direction. It's just like, you guys can't do this. You, you've got to stop. It is so frustrating, but let, let's we need to move on. I could preach a whole other message on that. But then, verse 10, and they kept the say, that saying with themselves about Jesus rising from the dead, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. This is why we want to take prophecy literal. Jesus told them very clearly, I think three times now, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men, he's going to be put to death, and three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And you know what the disciples said? I wonder what he means by that. <laughs> Here, here's what he meant by that. Exactly what he said. And you know what people are doing today? When they look at the, the verses about the coming of Jesus Christ, I wonder what he means by that. I think it means he's going to come back. Oh, what is that gathering, you know, that's going to take place? You know, I think, I think it's a spiritual gathering. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta understand the spiritualism of all these. You know, when the sun is darkened and moon is turned to blood. Okay. I personally believe that means the sun is going to be turned to darkness. I believe the moon is going to turn red. I believe you're not going to be able to see the star. I, think that, I, I believe it's like the Bible says. And then, I, but they teach, remember Joseph's dream about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing before him? That proves sun, moon, and stars represents Israel. Therefore, the sun being dark and moon turned to blood, the stars fall from heaven. That was a prophetic reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. No, no, I, I still think it's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. That's what I think it's talking about. And, I, and when I read about Jesus Christ coming in the clouds, I literally think he's going to come in the clouds. I literally think we're going to get gathered up. I think we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And he's going to take us to be with him forever. That's what I believe. I believe in a resurrection of the dead. Okay? Now, the disciples, they, their hearts were hardened at this time. They're struggling with this idea. They didn't understand that. What could that possibly mean? But it meant exactly what it said. And I'm telling you, when the Apostle Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, referring to a future resurrection, then is Christ not risen? And I'm, I'm telling you, you cannot spiritualize these things. And you've got you know people out there today that are teaching that a lot of the miracles were not literal, that the resurrection, they say all these things are just figurative. No, it really happened. Jesus really died, and three days later, he really rose from the dead. You don't believe that. You're not saved. And, that, and the Bible's very clear. 
about that. So I do, and, and you know, and while there's a lot of things that we might not completely understand about end times, I do believe that when it happens, we will understand. I think, though, I do believe, this is one thing I do believe, I do believe we are going to need faith till the very end. I, I believe whatever starts happening, there's still going to be some faith required up until we actually see Jesus in the clouds. When Even when the tribulation is going down, I think it's very possible there will be some doubt. I think when the mark of the beast is implemented, there's going to be some doubt whether or not it really is the mark of the beast or not. You're going to have to have faith until the very end of this thing. But one of these days, that faith is going to become sight, and you're going to see Jesus Christ. And when that time comes, you're immediately going to be like him. And I'm looking forward to that. So look at verse 11. It says, And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be said at naught? But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of them. So here's one thing. The prophecy charts that they had in their college textbooks actually were right in that area. But unfortunately, they missed Elijah and they killed him. Because John, he did. He came in that spirit of Elijah. And you could say, too, Elijah just came there, didn't he? I mean, Elijah did literally show up on the scene. They saw him. And I don't know if maybe that's why they brought that question up. But, you know, it's clear there was a lot that they didn't understand. But here's, here's the thing that wasn't on their charts, and that was the killing of Elijah. That wasn't on their chart, but it was in the Bible, and they fulfilled that prophecy. It, it, was, it was very clear that these things were going to happen. And so in verse 14, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answereth them and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe... All things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the spirit came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, this here's a pretty amazing story about him, you know, healing and casting a demon out of a demon-possessed young man. And, you know, we want to be careful taking passages like this and then just, like, coming up with all kinds of, you know, facts about demonology and figuring out how all these things work and, 
And uh, But here's the main thing I think we need to get from this passage is that some miracles, some spiritual situations, like with demon possession stuff, are harder than others. Because earlier in Mark, we saw it where Jesus gave his disciples power over unclean spirits, yet this one, they couldn't cast them out. And part of it was a lack of faith, but Jesus specifically said, this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. And so while, you know, it's, it, it, so it's not like any, all demon possessions are the same. Some are worse than others. And some are great miracles. Some maybe not as much. And basically what we're seeing here is this was just an extreme case and Jesus was able to do it. You know, this was just, you know, another just amazing miracle Jesus did. This was something where the disciples, everyone else, there was nothing they could do. They had no ability but to, to handle it, but Jesus was able to. I think that's the main thing we're supposed to get is that, you know, I do believe the ability to cast out demons and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean we can just do it with any. It doesn't mean we should just go walking around all cocky like, all right, show me a demon-possessed person, and I'm going to cast that baby out. You know, it, listen, some... They might, you know, give you the sons of Sceva treatment, you know, beat you up, send you running off naked or something like that. Let me tell you, I see somebody foaming at the mouth and rolling around and jumping in the fire and things like that. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not running up to that guy and, you know, you know, just, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little nervous about that. Like, Hey, can I have some time to fast and pray? Cause I don't know if I'm ready for this one right now. And, you know, there are, there are some spiritual situations that are very extreme. And, you know, I might fail. I could try fasting and praying, but, you know, I just might be too carnal. I might not be spiritual enough. I might not get the job done every time. And it's like that, unfortunately, with these things because it is a spiritual thing and we're often in the flesh. But thankfully, with Jesus Christ, he can handle it. Jesus Christ was able to handle it. That's the main thing we're supposed to get from this. And another thing that's interesting, too, I like how Jesus said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. And the man said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So it's like he's saying, I believe, but a part of me doesn't either. And we find ourselves in that situation a lot where we know what the Bible says, but sometimes it's hard to convince ourselves that that's the case. You know, we have to admit it. A lot of times when we pray, there's a part of us saying God's not going to answer this prayer. Isn't that a reality? Aren't we like that sometimes? There's a part of us that often doubts. But, you know, here's the thing. You know, it doesn't really take much faith to get the job done when your faith is in Christ. Because God can and God will help our unbelief. And notice, this guy's emotions, they were not on the right side of things. Emotionally... In this guy's heart, he's not really feeling it. Jesus tells him, if you can believe, and of course he says, I believe because he wants more than anything for his son to be delivered, but he's being honest with Jesus, and he says, help thou mine unbelief. So here's the thing that I get from this. Even though emotionally and mentally he was not on the right side in this situation, physically he was at least doing the right thing. You know what he was doing? He was coming to Jesus. And you know what? If people, their emotions might not always be there, but if they're coming to Jesus, you're doing the right thing. 
And, you know, we can't always make ourselves feel the way we need to feel, but we can at least do what we're supposed to do. And you might not be able to make yourself feel like God's going to answer your prayer, but you know what you can do? You can make yourself go to him in prayer. And too many people, they're waiting until their emotions are right. They're waiting, they're, they're waiting until they feel like it. Don't wait until you feel like it. Just do it. Just be honest. Just go to the Lord. You know, don't wait until you believe to pray. No, pray and ask God to help you through unbelief. He knows your heart. Just be honest with him. And this guy, it's clear that he wasn't in the right place mentally, but you know what? He was physically. He made himself do what he needed to do. He went to Jesus. He was honest and he had just, he had enough faith to do that and it got the job done. And I think that's the main thing we need to get from that. So verse 28 says when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? They wanted to wait until they were in private because I think they were kind of embarrassed that they couldn't get the job done. But it says, and he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So some spiritual challenges are harder than others. There's some things we're going to pray for, and it's like God answers it easy. Some things you're going to have to pray many times. Some things you're going to have to have some faith. Some things you might have to fast. And we just got to understand that, you know, this isn't just like just some name it and claim it kind of thing. Sometimes you got to work for it a little bit some, and, and have that, uh, that major faith. And God wants that from us. We need to be willing to do it. And if we want it bad enough, we will. Our problem is we don't want things that bad that we pray for. And, uh, and sometimes I believe God puts us in situations where we really do need something. That way he can strengthen our faith. So in verse 30, it says, and they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now, this is funny to us, isn't it? Because we know exactly what that means. And you know what it meant? Exactly what it said. Exactly, yet they don't, they, they don't get it. You know what their problem was? They, this was not according to their will. They couldn't accept what Jesus was saying right here. Because this was not according to their will. And so it's like, he, he's got to mean something else. He's speaking figuratively here, but they were, they were afraid to ask him. And I think part of it too is because this is the third time. Have somebody ever told you something multiple times and you, like, maybe they told you their, their name like three times? And then you get to a point where you're like embarrassed to ask after that because, well, you know, obviously I wasn't really listening or didn't really pay attention. I just didn't really care, <laughs> you know. And so then you have to just go and you have to try to find it out some other way. And that's when I was at work, the people I worked with, I was terribly. There's people I worked with for six years and I never learned their names. I just learned to avoid it. And because after six years, you just can't ask at that point, you know. <laughs> it's too late. You can't ask. It's embarrassing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm slow with learning names. But verse 30 says, and they departed thence and passed, or, um, I'm sorry, verse 33. It says, and they came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all. And servant of all, you know, and this attitude of who is the greatest, that attitude has no place in the Christian world. Yet that attitude is all over the place. 
and that that is the most unchristian thing in the world. And I preach a lot of messages on that. I'm not going to talk about that, but uh, that is that that's a bad attitude. And if you if you are really interested in being the greatest, then you need to serve others. Don't look to be served. You go serve other people. You go start being a blessing to other people, and then the Lord will exalt you in His time. And it might not be on this earth. You might have to wait till the millennium. And I, we should be okay with that. So verse 36, And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So God's mission is for us to serve others. And serving others is how we serve God. He said, if you receive me, he says, you're not receiving me, but you're receiving him that sent me. And he said, and if you're receiving children, you're receiving me. So when we are when we are blessing children, when we are being good to children, we're being good to God. That's what he wants us to do. That's his desire. It's like, well, they're just kids. Who cares? Right? Well, that's a very, you know, carnal, worldly attitude to have because I mean, good night. You know, as a pastor, what's the point of impressing the kids? They don't have any money. You know, what what, you know, what are they gonna put in the offering plate? You know, what you know, what could, what can they contribute to the church, right? That's our, you know, that's kind of the attitude that we have. But here's the thing. God loves them a lot. A lot. He cares about them a lot. They're angels. You didn't know they had angels, did you? Their angels do always behold the face of our Father. And so understand, God cares very much how we treat these little ones that believe in him. He cares he cares a lot. And so understand, when we're doing good for them, we're doing good for God. You know, all of us ought to have an attitude that you know, we want to, we want, we should want kids to like coming to church. We should want to make church a more pleasant experience for, for them. You know, people talk all the time about how, you know, we need to get God in church and we need to get God to show up. Well, you know what? Maybe if we start thinking about other people, being a blessing to other people and caring about the children, I think God would show up. I think God would care. I think if we would reach and, and, and go after the poor and these people out there that God loves, people that can't do anything for us maybe, but we can do something for them, you know what? That's the kind of thing that's going to get God to show up because God cares very, very much about these people. And that's what we need to be thinking about and not having this you know, corporate mentality where we're just looking for the best people just so we can build our empire and, and we can be great and I can be great. No, that should be the attitude. We need to care about, uh, we need to care about children. And then it says, in, and uh, so in verse 38, it says, and John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Okay, now if somebody is not working against us, if they're doing anything to help us and encourage us, they are on the Lord's side, even just giving a cup of water. Okay, that is helping us who are doing the Lord's work Therefore, they are doing the Lord's work. And you know, sometimes there's people that are out there, they might not even be saved, 
But yet, if they're just being good to us, if they're just encouraging us, we've had people before we're out soling on a hot day that'll give us bottles of water and things. You know what? They're doing the Lord's work when they do that. You know why? Because they're helping us who's doing the Lord's work. And you know, we're not going to be mean to these people. These, these, these people are not our enemies. They are not, there's a difference between somebody who disagrees with us and somebody who's working against us. It, there's a lot of churches in this community that teach things that are different than what we teach. They're, they're wrong on a lot of things, but unless they're out there actively working against us, we don't need to treat these people like enemies. Okay? Now, we're not going to go have an ecumenical service together and you know, let them come and do their thing and we do our thing. You know, we're not, we're not going to do that, but we're not going to be mean to these people. Okay? They're, they're, not our, they're not our enemies because they're not, they're not working against us and especially if they're encouraging us, then they're on our part. If they're doing anything, they're on our part. So there's a big difference between someone who is that direct opposition and someone who is just different or someone who just disagrees on something. You know, there's also a difference between someone who's actually getting in our territory and on our turf and messing with us and someone who's just out there doing their own thing differently but not affecting us in any way. You understand what I'm saying? You know, there, there's churches out there, they're teaching some bad stuff, okay? But do we really know, need to go protest their church right now? And, you know, do I need to go find them and make a video bashing them or something when we don't even know who they are because they're not affecting us? Okay, now if they start coming around and messing with us, if they start, you know, knocking on our doors, you know, because most churches aren't even knocking on doors today. They're not, they're not doing anything, you know, and... Uh, and, and a lot of these people would probably be nice to us and, and encourage us. And so, you know, we don't, need to, we don't need to wage a war against them. Okay. Now, if they do, if they start trying to bring their leaven into this church, then we deal with it. You know, then it's on when they get on our turf. But we're not just going to go looking for enemies places. I think that's a, I think that's a bad policy. And so, verse 42 says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and were cast in the sea. And I wish I had time to preach on this for a while, but let me tell you something. Jesus was in favor of a violent death penalty. Oh, you need to be more like Jesus. I can't believe you think pedophiles ought to be put down and all this. You guys won't let reformed uh, predators into your church. You know, why don't you be more like Jesus? Because I'd go to jail if I was more like Jesus. I, if I literally went and one of these predators that comes along, and if I tied a millstone around their neck and I threw them into the sea, I'd go to jail. we'd go to jail for that. We can't do that. And Jesus told us, you know, that that's for the government to do, and so we're still listening to him. But if we listen to these people who are telling us to be like Jesus, we're going to have all kinds of problems. And so thankfully, Jesus did not tell us to break the law in that area and go killing people that ought to be put down, so we're not going to do it. But these people, they need to stop telling us all, start being more like Jesus. Because one of these days, somebody's not going to know any better, and they're going to listen to them. And they're going to take, take care of one of these pedophiles. And that's just not the way we want to handle those things, all right? So uh, don't listen to these people when they tell you to be more like Jesus when it comes to dealing with perverts. Everybody got that? People always accuse us of teaching everybody to be violent and stuff. I'm here telling you, don't be violent. And don't listen to these people and be like Jesus in this area. Because no drowning people, all right? We're against that 
in this church. So verse 43, if our, if our local leaders do it, though, the government does it, uh, I'll cheer them on. All right? I'll bring popcorn to the event and uh, pass it out as we watch. But anyway, it says, verse 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Okay, and this, the section here where it talks about into the fire shall be quenched, where the worm dies not, the fire is not quenched, that's taken out of most Bibles. Okay, most Bibles today take that out. Now keep that in mind. Most Bibles have eliminated this, and we're going to come up on a verse that is a little confusing. And I think the reason most people can't figure out what it means because most people's Bibles don't have what it does need in order to understand this. And I can, I can see why a lot of people would want to take that out if you don't like preaching on hell. Talking about where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's pretty violent too. Hey, that, that's rough stuff right there. It says, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet and cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Hey, now, why does it keep saying that? And why do these other Bibles leave that out of there? Listen, it's so important. Because I, 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 this, this, this verse coming up here, it's one I, was, I looked it up online, and there's a ton of things. And people, most people, you know, commentators out there too, and these are like non-King James people, they don't really know what this means. But I think part of their problem is they're not using the King James Bible. If they use the King James Bible, they would have some context, and they could understand this a little bit. But look what it says in verse 49. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace one with another. So notice that phrase, salted with fire. That is kind of a strange statement. What does that mean? Well, what I personally believe it's talking about here. I believe that it is a reference to a purifying that everyone will receive. Okay, and salt, uh, you know, salting things, uh, fire, uh, you know, fire burning things. Those things are often done to purify. And the Bible does say in First Peter one seven that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So notice we have it, it, it using a comparison of gold being tried in the fire. This is something that's going to happen at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So I don't pretend to understand all of this, but there's no doubt that one of these days there is kind of a fire that's going to come for us, one that is going to be a purifier, one that's going to remove all that is bad and one that's going to leave only the good. Our works are all going to be tried. And I said, again, I don't, put, I don't pretend to completely understand all this, but what I personally think we're, we're seeing right here is the fire that tries us, that, that uh, what the Bible says, um, uh, for everyone shall be salted with fire, I believe that's talking about a purifying that's going to test our works and that's going to leave us clean, unlike 
the fire of the unsaved? For their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Okay, whatever that fire is, whatever that fire is that we go through that tries our works, that's just going to be temporary. Okay, and I don't, I don't understand what all that's going to be like, but I do know this, that the, those who are not saved, those who do not go in the kingdom of God, their fire will never be quenched. Their worm will not die. I believe that's a reference to their carcass. It's going to be an eternal fire, one that's going to last forever. And let me tell you, you'd be better off plucking your eye out, cutting off your hand, whatever, than going into that. That's the last thing you want. And on all of us, we're going to be salted with fire. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tried with fire. But we're going to actually get through it. Those of us who are saved, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And this may be very well what John was talking about in chapter 1 of Mark when he talked about Jesus where he said, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so I believe this salted with fire phrase right here, this is just a reference to the purifying that God is going to do with us someday. And that that fire that we're going to go through, it's going to be a good thing. It's going to remove all that is bad. It's going to leave only that which is good. But the lost, the fire that they're going to get, the baptism of fire they're going to get is going to be one that lasts for all eternity. And we definitely don't want that. So I personally, that's what I personally believe about this phrase, salted with fire. When Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be a separating of the sheep from the goats. There's going to be a, a purging that's going to go on. And there's going to be a change that takes place with us. Stuff's going to happen with us. We're going to stand before God. We're going to be judged. Our works are going to be tried. I don't know what all that's going to look like. I don't know what all's going to go down and how it's going to play out exactly. But there's no doubt there's going to be a fire involved somewhere that's going to take care of all that stuff. But I'm not, I'm not worried about it. We're going to get through it. We're going to be fine. It's going to leave us good. It's going to leave us better. It's going to be a refining, a purifying. Everything that's going to come from it is going to be good. But let me tell you something. That fire that's coming on those who have not believed, I don't want anything to do with that. And thank God, we will never experience that. We will never deal with that. Thank God for that. So that right there is Mark chapter 9 and a lot of deep stuff in that chapter for sure. A lot of really deep stuff in there, but uh, hopefully this was a help to you. And uh, hopefully too, right now, you will try to purify yourself. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And I don't know, said I don't know what, what it's all going to feel like, how it's going to go down. I do know this, the more we purify ourselves on this earth, the better off we're going to be then. Now's the time we can actually do something about it. And, the, and the, these Christians, people who are saved, but don't have any works, that don't change their life, they're going to regret it when that day comes. They are going to be sorry when that day comes. And uh, so let's let's do something about it now. You know, let's just let's just believe Christ. Just believe what He says. Don't make the same mistake the disciples were making, where we just uh, well, I wonder what He means by that. Well, I'm going to just take it literally. I'm just going to believe what it says, and uh, I'll let Jesus sort out the details when He comes back. So, with that, let's pray, dear Lord. We thank you so much for your Word. I pray, dear God, that uh, this message will be a challenge. And help to all of us, I pray that all of us will do our best to purify ourselves, to just keep sin and garbage out of our life. And I just pray you'll bless each one for it. And I pray as we 
uh, just look forward to you coming back and receiving us. In your name we pray. Amen.